Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, we'll play a few minutes of Governor Mike DeWine's press conference from this week, updating the COVID-19 situation in Ohio and his concerns as schools begin classes around the state. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend talks with two Democrats running for governor. They are the mayor of Dayton and the mayor of Cincinnati. She'll also talk to the two winners, one from each party, in this month's congressional primary for the 15th District in Central Ohio, previously held by Republican Steve Stivers, who now heads the Ohio Chamber of Commerce. And reporter Kevin Landers has a story about the increase being seen of college students cheating on their studies. And in about 40 minutes, I'll talk with Hannah Cox, Senior National Manager of Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty. First up on Columbus Perspective, Governor Mike DeWine held a news conference earlier this week to update Ohioans on the coronavirus. Here's just his opening statements from it. This runs about 11 minutes. Across Ohio, our children are starting back to school. And I think Ohioans are united in wishing that all of our children have a great school year. We hope, we pray that the kids will be able to stay in class with in-person learning without interruption. It's because of that goal today that I'm holding this press conference. That goal of having our children in school, in person, is now being threatened, even as school is just now starting. That goal is now clearly at risk. Today in Ohio, we are facing a perfect storm. Just as our kids are back to school, the new Delta variant is sweeping across our state, taking direct aim at all those who are unvaccinated. Sadly, things have worsened since our last press conference. And today we want to reiterate the recommendation that the state health department made 10 days ago. The school children be vaccinated or wear a mask while in the classroom. These steps will give them by far the best chance of staying in school. Now we know that most of our school kids are not vaccinated. We know that children 11 years of age and younger can't yet be vaccinated. And that those 12 to 17 of those, only 35% of them are currently vaccinated. The spread of the Delta variant has dramatically accelerated since I last spoke to you 10 days ago. We are at the highest level of cases since last February. Today, we're reporting 3,235 cases. Now, to put that number in context, we've had three days in the last week with over 3,000 newly reported cases. Prior to this week, we haven't had a single day with over 3,000 newly reported cases since February. To show you how fast the virus is accelerating in Ohio, listen to this. On July 7th, July 7th, our cases were at a very low level of 17, 17 cases statewide per 100,000 people for a two-week period, 17. Today, that number has gone from 17 to 236. 
Every county in the state is now considered a high incident county. If we look at cases per week over the past month, they went from over 2,000 during the 4th of July week to over 13,000 last week. That's over a 500% increase in cases. Today, there are 1,571 of our fellow citizens hospitalized in Ohio with COVID. Like case numbers, this is the highest since last February when we had 1,571 patients in the hospital with COVID. Additionally, there are currently 464 people, 464 people in ICUs in Ohio with COVID. This is the highest number again since last winter, specifically last February, when 466 patients were in the ICU. Now, we're clearly well past the time when the state can mandate to parents, to local school districts, to parochial or private schools, what actions to take. These decisions today rest with each parent, rest with the parents and it rests with the school officials. But I believe we have a moral obligation to lay out to the people of Ohio, to those parents, those school officials, the facts. And I think it would be wrong, it would be irresponsible for us to not give the parents and school officials the information that we have to help them make informed decisions. So I'm speaking today directly to every parent every school official, every school board member in Ohio, public, private, parochial schools. The best way to make sure a child can stay in school and not have his or her classes interrupted is for that child to be vaccinated. If that child cannot be vaccinated, the best way to ensure a good school year for that child is for that child to wear a mask while in class. You know, we know so much more today than we knew when this pandemic started. We've had a whole school year of experience in seeing how well the masks work in class. And that has shown us that when, when children are wearing masks in the classroom, the virus rarely spreads there. And now, in addition to that tool, we also have the vaccine for those 12 years of age and older. As parents and school officials make decisions about our schools, about their children, it might also be instructive to learn from states that have already started school and are ahead of us in the Delta surge. Brevard Public Schools near Orlando, Florida, started classes last week with masks being optional optimal, optional, excuse me. They're now reporting more than 470 COVID-19 cases among students and teachers with more than six, 1,060 in quarantine. Hillsborough County Public Schools, a district in Tampa, Florida, also started classes last week. And as of yesterday, nearly 5,600 students 
and 316 district employees were either isolating after testing positive for COVID or in quarantine after being in close proximity with someone who did test positive. Let's go to South Carolina. The biggest school district in South Carolina in Pickens County reopened two weeks ago. Nine days later, the school board voted to shift students temporarily to virtual learning after 168 COVID cases among students and staff and 568 students and staff ended up in quarantine. Here in Ohio, we've had a great deal of experience with kids in mass last school year. We have no experience with kids in school without wearing masks during a pandemic. With the Delta variant producing so many cases today, it will be very difficult to keep it out of the classroom. And it will be impossible once it's in the classroom to keep it from spreading unless the students wear masks or vaccinated. Without something to stop the virus, it will dramatically increase the number of children who will have to quarantine and dramatically decrease the number of schools that continue can continue in-person learning. Our children simply cannot afford another disrupted school year. We need them in the classroom. And the real tragedy of all of this is it's the children who will suffer when schools shut down. They are the ones who will miss out on their favorite activities, things they enjoy doing. They'll miss out on the classwork that they need. They're the ones who will get further and further behind. And that would not be fair to them. Now, I know some may say, well, look, Mike, we got through last year, so why can't we get through this year? Let me talk about that. Things are fundamentally different this year. Last year, every student wore a mask in the classroom, and it worked. This year, if schools elect not to have students wear a mask, not to require that, things will sadly, sadly be a lot different. We're in a very precarious time. We have a very high rate of spread in all of our counties, all 88 counties. With previous variants, one person would usually spread it to two people. But as Dr. Vanderhoff has told you, the Delta variant spreads from one person, not to two, but to five. This is a whole different ballgame. I think what is most important right now is protecting our children and keeping them in school where they're safe, where they belong, and where they need to be. And so to all those who are making decisions right now about our schools, if you're not requiring masks, please, please, please think about this again. At the very least, consider doing it for the next few weeks. The next few weeks when we know the virus spread level will be very high. You can always go back to no mask once the virus spread is reduced. With increasing numbers of new COVID cases and hospitalizations, this is the time to take precautions, not the time to take them away. Finally, to our Ohio parents, let me speak again to you directly. If your child's school does not require a mask, you still have the right to have your child wear a mask. 
We want our kids in school. We want them to play sports or to be in the band, on the choir, in the choir, on the debate team. We want them to be learning. We want our kids to be healthy and happy and to have a semblance of a normal school year this year. Ultimately, the best way to do that, the best way to prevent them from missing school or their activities to either the quarantining or becoming ill with COVID, the best way to protect them is to send them to school with a mask. And if they're age 12 or older, to get them vaccinated just as soon as you can. Governor Mike DeWine from a press conference earlier this week. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. The stigma of addiction is destroying lives across the country, preventing our loved ones from getting the help they need. We are Shatterproof, a national nonprofit dedicated to ending the stigma and devastation addiction causes families. We are changing laws, creating a community of support, and providing evidence-based resources for prevention, treatment, and recovery. Stigma shatters lives. Rise up against addiction now so another life isn't lost. Get involved at shatterproof.org slash rise up. What if being in recovery from a mental or substance use disorder was something we proudly showed the world? You might be surprised. Millions of people are in recovery, sharing hope, help, and support with family, friends, and community. Join the voices for recovery. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. Here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. From Southwest Ohio to the State House, two Democratic mayors are looking for a major promotion. I'll talk with the newest gubernatorial candidate, Cincinnati Mayor John Cranley, and we'll hear from Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley, who's already in the race, and what she thinks of this newest competitor. The whole point of doing a census is to make sure that we're able to ensure that our democracy keeps up with the population by reflecting population change. Census data and the state of Ohio, what a new report shows about our neighbors. It can't be the shared story that we only learn about black history during February and we go from slavery to the civil rights movement. And a conversation about critical race theory. The Columbus School Board president talks history in its true form. Face the State starts now.
lawmakers are on summer recess, but their agenda is building for September. Republicans tell our partners at the Columbus Dispatch that they'll be discussing vaccine requirements and mask mandates for both businesses and schools. This is happening as both the Delta variant and a lack of vaccinations throw sort of a wrench in Ohio's COVID-19 recovery. We thank you for joining us for Face the State this morning. I'm Tracy Townsend. Though we might be tired of it, COVID-19 is not tired of us. In fact, we are on the upswing, which means future leaders need to have a plan. That includes the candidates running to be Ohio's next governor. Cincinnati Mayor John Cranley weighed in and told me that while he thinks it's important not to politicize COVID, he does think it's important to listen to the experts and get vaccinated against the virus. I talked with him after he announced that he's running for governor. Given how contagious this new variant is, we may all end up getting COVID, but the people who get the vaccines get less severe cases are extremely unlikely to die. And so um, not that it never happens, but it is the best solution uh, that we have is um, is to do that. And I, I, I also believe that this government has been attacking freedom. And so if a religious organization, if the school, if a, if a high school or a grade school or a private employer uh, decides that a requirement of work for safety purposes uh, is testing, is vaccines or, or masks, they should be allowed to do that. Um, that's what the freedom of association that's guaranteed in our Constitution is. Okay, Mayor Cranley is the latest person to join the governor's race. He's been in office in Cincinnati since 2013. He grew up in the Price Hill neighborhood and is a graduate of St. Xavier High School and has earned degrees from John Carroll University, Harvard Law School, and Harvard Divinity School. Cranley says our state needs a comeback, and he says he's the one to lead it. Columbus is growing and Cincinnati is growing, but most of the other state is not keeping pace with national growth. Young people are moving away. It's not moving in the right direction. Cincinnati, uh, by contrast, had a similar trajectory as the state for most of my life, where it was shrinking in size, but now is growing again. And we've made a comeback. Wages are going up in Cincinnati. Things are moving in the right direction. For the first time since 1950, we will have an increase in the census after decline, after decline, after decline. So Ohio needs a comeback. We deserve a governor who's led a comeback. Mike DeWine and the Republicans, their career is synonymous with Ohio's decline. My career is synonymous with Cincinnati's comeback. And that comeback is about three big ideas to rebuild the middle class. One, 30,000 jobs that I'll create every year that will pay a minimum of $60,000 a year, a middle class salary. Second, uh, legalize marijuana uh, to get the tax revenues and uh, to get the benefits of the jobs, but to use the, the tax revenue to pay for those jobs that I just mentioned. And three, a first of its kind dividend from the natural gas energy profits of our state of $500 per family per year. Uh, it's projected to go up about 10% a year. And that means within about seven years would be $1,000 per family. They have a dividend like this in Alaska, and we deserve it here in Ohio. And it's the exact opposite of what the Republicans did with HB6, which was to take money from the people of Ohio and give it away to the special interests. Cranley's opponent on the Democratic side is another Southwest Ohio mayor. 
Nan Whaley became a national figure about two years ago after the Dayton deadly shooting. Her calls for gun reform were heard all over the country. Whaley visited the Lincoln Cafe on Long Street here in Columbus. She was asked about her new opponent. I have a lot of respect for Mayor Cranley. We've worked together on many issues, but we are different. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, you know, I come from a very working class, middle class background, and you know, do not do not come and still, you know, in a very working class neighborhood and very uh, middle class, not a millionaire. Uh, I think that's a big difference. We have different styles for sure, uh, and I think that's key. And um, I don't know if you noticed, but I do look different than every single candidate that's running for governor today. How about legalizing marijuana? Oh yeah, we were the first city in the state to decriminalize marijuana by a vote, and in that vote, I said if the state would do it, we would, if we could, we would have legalized it in Dayton years ago. Like what we've done in Dayton is we follow CDC guidelines, right? So this is pretty simple for us. We take CDC guidelines, we listen to public health. Public health says here's where we go and we move forward. Um, I think it takes a lot of the consternation out of what to do or what not to do. You know. I'm a, I'm a chemistry degree major in undergrad. I, I, I trust science and, you know, believe doctors. And so I think that's really, really key. Uh, it gets too political too fast at the State House, and Governor DeWine's just unwilling to bend to the extremists in his party. And we're going to see that more and more as we get closer to this primary election. Mayor Whaley also talked about her push for better jobs. Under my administration, I will instruct Jobs Ohio to only invest in businesses that pay a fair wage and treat workers with respect. Early in my term, I will convene a reInvent Ohio initiative to support Ohio's entrepreneurs. We will bring together banks, investors, community leaders, and entrepreneurs to help guide public investment in small businesses that are critical to the state's economic future. The ingenuity of Ohio's entrepreneurs and communities can drive our prosperity, but in a way that leaves no one behind. And Willie says high-paying jobs of today don't look like the high-paying jobs of the past. She says it's vital for Ohio to take concrete steps to make sure the state is a national leader in renewable energy jobs. As the Democrats go head-to-head, -head, Governor Mike DeWine faces several challengers on the Republican side. DeWine argues he's been transparent with the state during the pandemic, and he says he plans to continue that leadership in 2022. Central Ohio farmer and business owner Joe Blystone is hoping to upset the incumbent governor. Blystone says it's time to pull back decades of bad policies. And former U.S. Congressman and former U.S. Senate candidate Jim Renacci says the governor acted as a dictator and plans to push DeWine out of office. We talked with Renacci earlier this summer. You can watch that interview and hear what DeWine had to say about the challenge at 10tv.com slash face the state. Ohio is expected to lose one seat because of what's in the census. Lawmakers are meeting to figure out how the new lines will look. What data will they use? Some of it is from the census and the details were just released. Here's what we learned about our state. Ohio had a growth of about 5% over the past decade. That's less than states in the South or West. Most of the Midwest experienced little to no growth over the past 30 years. And as we mentioned, Ohio is expected to lose a congressional seat, but we knew about that in April. The governor created a commission to redraw the boundaries, which is expected to happen over the next few weeks. Columbus is one of only 14 cities in the United States to grow by 100,000 people or more over the past decade. Franklin County grew by 13.8 percent or 160,000 people. Delaware and Union counties each grew by more than 20 percent. 
Nationwide, the headline boils down to one word, diversity. It's not just going to be a white America anymore. It's going to be an America that uh, is very fluid in terms of its race and ethnicity, especially among the younger population. Local leaders who choose to use this data make, make decisions such as where to build roads and hospitals. The whole point of doing a census is to make sure that we're able to ensure that our democracy keeps up with the population by reflecting population change. White Americans now account for less than two-thirds of the population. That's down more than 8%. The number of black Americans climbed by single digits, Asians and Latinos by double digits, and people who identify as multiracial spiked 276%. This morning, a congressional roundup for you starts with the 15th district after that primary election for a candidate to replace the retired Steve Stivers. Mike Carey won the Republican vote in that special election to the U.S. House. He was the only candidate to have the endorsement of former President Donald Trump he is president and chairman of the Ohio Coal Association. I'm going to go to Capitol Hill and I'll hit the ground running. Um, there will not be on-the-job training for me, but I'm an outsider. I'm somebody that's never served in office, and I'm not going to be like your typical politician that is just going to wait to get things done. In the business world, as anybody who's listening knows, we can't wait. We have to act now. We've got a plan. We've got a direction. We've got to move forward. And uh, listen, I'm excited about the opportunity. Two-term state rep Allison Russo won the Democratic primary election and is now working to move from representing Ohio's 24th House District to the U.S. House on Capitol Hill. I have proven myself in my service in the state house uh, to be someone who is going to be a representative who goes to Congress, who's going to be willing to stand up to special interest and the lobbyists who run Washington, uh, knowing that I will be someone who's going to fight for the working families in this state and in this district, uh, fighting for things like good paying jobs, for affordable health care, for quality education, and a chance to live a good life here in Ohio. Congressman Troy Balderson, who represents the 12th district, spent his Monday on the campus of Ohio Wesleyan University, highlighting advances in agriculture. The Republican talked with soybean-related companies to learn about the value chain. Soybeans, as you may know, are Ohio's top agricultural export. And Balderson wanted to highlight a lab dedicated solely to innovative new uses for soybeans. Research is driving new uses for soybeans, which will help farmers by creating more demand for this commodity. Balderson is a member of the House Committee on Agriculture. All right, so if you've been looking to buy a home, you know it's a tough market, but homeowners aren't the only ones feeling the pinch. Don't mean to impress anybody, I just want to work. Why this small business is struggling. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Wherever you call home, the sounds of wildlife connect you with the greater family of life. I'm Ed Begley, Jr., and when you see habitat being destroyed, you know that wild animals are losing their homes, the greatest threat to their survival. The Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust offers a humane solution, helping private landowners to protect habitat as permanent safe havens for wildlife. Your voice can speak for wildlife and their homes. Visit the Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust at wildlifelandtrust.org. This is my new best friend. 
Esther. She might look like any normal, playful puppy, but Esther's being raised to become a canine companions for independence assistance dog for a person with a disability. To get there, she needs lots of loving care and attention, plenty of exercise, and good eating habits so that she can live a long and healthy life for her future family. Visit cci.org or call 1-800-572-BARK. Raise a puppy, change a life. You can make a world of difference in the life of a person with a disability. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. It's a challenging market for home buyers and sellers. Prices and demand are high for small business owners. Finding space is also competitive. 10TV's Lindsay Mills spoke with a sandwich shop owner in Westerville who calls it a nightmare. Sue Shield says in her 29 years of owning Yogi's Hoagies, she's never experienced a more challenging time. For one, she can't find enough workers. Now she needs to find a new place. I can't explain it. At 84 years old. I don't mean to impress anybody. I just want to work. Sue Shield is a mom, grandmother, and great-grandmother. It's what I do. I, I don't know how to not work. If there's anything she's just as proud of as her family, it's her business. These people are wonderful people here. They, they are so supportive. She makes every customer feel like family. I'd be a fool not to stay here. But she can't. We need some place to go. The doors at this South State Street shop are about to close for good. I uh, sold the property. She owns the business, but not the property. Every place that we call here in Westerville, they, they either don't call us back or um, they've already been leased. It's a difficult time for small business owners to find space. I think every, anyone in Westerville is eating there. Jay Zollers works with commercial real estate as a broker and owner of RZ Realty in Columbus. He says across central Ohio, office space is available and affordable, but the demand for flex space is high and hard to find in certain places. I get calls daily for people looking for warehouse space in Westerville. For Yogi's Hoagies, Zoller says it could be challenging to find space nearby. But for Sue, Westerville is home. I don't know how not to work. I, I can't imagine getting up in the morning and not coming here to my store. And it's more than a business. It's her purpose, her independence. I don't want anyone to feel responsible for me, my daughters. Um, I'm responsible for me. And this was what I counted on. Sue says some loyal customers are working to try to find her a place. For now, their last day is August 28th. In Westerville, Lindsay Mills, 10 TV News. A reckoning on race coming up by the Columbus School Board president says she came out against new legislation. Veterans Michelle Scott, Carl Blake, and Jesse Graham. I was an unemployed veteran. After injury, I felt scared, worried, concerned. I just remember sitting there trying to move my legs. First person I saw after my wife was a, a paralyzed Veterans of America member. They gave me the outlet to find a career now. They focus on the accessibility for our lives. They helped me get to a point where I'm at now, where I can have a job, have a family, and live life the way I want to live life. To learn more, visit pva.org. A public service from Paralyzed Veterans of America. Crispy. Faded. Lit. Baked. Toasty. Stoned. Blazed. Zooted. When you're high, there are a lot of ways to say it. But there's only one thing you need to remember. Driving under the influence of marijuana is illegal everywhere. If you feel different, you drive different. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. 
This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. As students head back to school, critical race theory has a lot of families talking about race and history as a whole. Critical race theory has been defined in many different ways. Some call it an academic concept based on the idea that racism is more than individual bias. While others say it's a legal concept aimed at challenging the approach to racial justice. Here in Ohio, Republican lawmakers introduced legislation that would ban it. That caught the attention of the Columbus City School Board and President Jennifer Adair. She spoke at a Columbus Metro Club discussion about the board's decision to come out against two bills. I think that there's some kind of misunderstanding or misconception about K-12 curriculum in general, that somehow it's been labeled perfect already. And the truth is it's not. The truth is it is far from perfect. The truth is K-12 curriculum is taught differently in every state. You can pick up a textbook that is made by the same company that has different facts, uh, different stories told um, depending on where you are. The Texas book is different than the Ohio book. Um, You know, I I think there's a misconception. Um, The winners write the history. The winners write the story. And, and I think this is a move to center it, um, to really highlight in, in those stories and context other stories, other people's stories in that shared history. Um, it isn't just the pilgrims came over and, you know, d- you know the Indians were bad and they took over the Indians. I mean, that's not, that can't be the shared story. Um, it can't be the shared story that we only learn about black history during February and we go from slavery to the civil rights movement. Earlier this summer, the Verify team looked at whether critical race theory is taught in Ohio schools. You can find Karina Nova's Verify report at 10tv.com slash verify. Well, cheating in school isn't new, but a new study suggests that cheating is more of an issue than school administrators thought. For example, academic misconduct investigations at The Ohio State University doubled from 2019 to 2020. But some lawmakers are actually targeting their teachers for the same thing. TV's Kevin Landers takes us to campus. Plagiarism. Answer sharing. Paying someone to complete your coursework. Cheating has always been an issue on college campuses, but experts say the pandemic made it even worse. 30% said they've cheated more since the pandemic has started. Professor George Watson of Marshall University is the lead author of this new study that showed students cheated more in online classes compared to live classes during the pandemic. In our survey, less than 2% said they were ever caught uh, cheating in any way. On the campus of Ohio State. I feel like most of my professors purposefully made the exam so that it was hard to cheat. Cheating investigations doubled from 2019 to 2020. Students were stressed saw an opportunity and ended up committing academic misconduct. According to Ohio State's Committee on Academic Misconduct, 43% of cases involve violation of course rules, followed by plagiarism, sharing information, and copying work of another. It was definitely a lot easier to do that kind of stuff this past year. Most of the cheating OSU found happened in lower level coursework. Why? We have incoming freshmen that are not used to an academic, the college level 
rigor of college-level academics. At Ohio State, the most cheating happened in math, chemistry, biochemistry, computer science, and statistics, which happened to be the courses most students take. No, I was not surprised by it because I'd been living it. So was Megan Lobert, Assistant Language Program Director at Ohio State. We've had cases where you're sitting there watching the, the recording of the student and you see like their roommate leaning in the screen and they're pointing and you see the person like, you know, going like that. And so in some cases it's that blatant. Trisha Bertram Gallant is the Director of Academic Integrity at the University of California, San Diego. Her research reveals college professors found a way to address cheating by teaching differently. Students knowing that there was going to be an oral assessment check made them calm down about the, the cheating problem, and then they were less likely to cheat. Um, and they also felt like the faculty cared more about their learning. Students aren't the only ones who cheat, so do teachers, and state records show it's only a small percentage. In the past, teachers in K-12 through caught cheating could face suspension, but under a new state budget, the Ohio Department of Education can now revoke a teacher's license. From 2018 to 2020, the Ohio Department of Education says it investigated just 20 cases of K-12 through teachers accused of academic misconduct conduct, which includes changing a student's grade. It is a tiny problem, and I wish legislators would spend their time focused more on the needs of students than uh, punishing people. While cheating in schools is nothing new, it's the societal impact that everyone should be concerned about. People like doctors and engineers, like you don't want those people to be cheating their way through school. Kevin Landers, 10 TV News. What's driving kids to cheat? Those who study cheating say... Most cheating happens in subjects students aren't interested in, like courses they're forced to take to satisfy a major requirement like a foreign language. They say cheating often happens in courses where there are high stakes at getting good grades, like getting into the school of engineering, medical, and law schools. Sports teams like the Cleveland Indians and Washington Redskins have been changing their names. Now, Ohio lawmakers want to do the same in your schools. Representatives Adam Miller and Jessica Miranda are pushing Ohio schools to stop using Native American mascots. The resolution encourages the state school board and Native American groups to make what they consider a necessary change. On the heels of the Cleveland Guardians name change, we're calling for an end to the hurtful and derogatory stereotypes too often used in our state today. I think, you know, the time is best now more than ever to really tackle this issue here in Ohio. About 80 schools in Ohio have Native American nicknames or mascots. Now they say it's time to work together and make Native American mascots a thing of the past. They expect the resolution to move through the legislative process as early as September. We did reach out to Republican Ohio House Speaker Bob Cup to get some comments about this resolution. As of Friday, we did not hear back. Although the pandemic caused many summer camps to go virtual, that did not stop these young ladies you're about to meet. They got to learn a new lesson or two before the school year begins. This girl group, Black Girl Rising, wrapped up their virtual summer camp. The main focus this year, body image, mental health, and conflict resolution. The goal is for the girls to live authentically. Don't let, like, bad things bring you down for the day. Bring Like, just always make sure that you do something. Take care of yourself. Self-care, things of that nature. Always do something to replenish your good energy. And next month, they will hold focus groups for girls and boys. Remember, as your students head back to class, 10TV is there along the way. We'd love to be a part of your morning routine. 
I'll see you dark and early for Wake Up CBUS. It's a great time. We're on the air from 425 to 7 in the morning. We'll get you up to speed on your latest local news, weather, and traffic. In the meantime, thank you so much for joining us here today. We'll see you back here next Sunday for Face the State. Have a great day. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. This is Jim at a party. Dude, pass it. Hi there. This is Jim making nachos. Hi there. This is Jim watching his favorite horror movie. Oh yeah, definitely hi there. And this is Jim driving his car. Dude, not high there. Jim's making good decisions and not getting behind the wheel when he's high. Because he knows that if you feel different, you drive different. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. You must call 811 at least two to three business days before any digging project. So before you do this or this, make sure you do this. For digging projects big or small, make the call to 811. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Hannah Cox. She's the Senior National Manager of Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us about the organization. Yeah, Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty got started uh, over a decade ago now in Montana with a group of grassroots conservatives working around the legislature there, and as you often see happen in state legislatures, they were considering a bill that would shorten the appellate process for death penalty cases, and this group became very concerned about that and thought, you know, the death penalty doesn't align with conservative values. It isn't a limited government policy. It doesn't protect the sanctity of human life. It certainly has um, many individual liberty issues and also, you know, fiscal conservatism aspects. So they started organizing and calling themselves conservatives concerned about the death penalty, and what they found were, were a lot of Republicans kind of started coming out of the woods work and had been really struggling with this issue and just didn't know there were others who had similar thoughts or, or instincts. And so it, it took off quite rapidly. We went national in 2013, launching at CPAC officially, and we've been growing pretty quickly ever since then. We're now, uh, we have 15 state chapters across the country. We've been very involved three successful campaigns to repeal the death penalty. We've seen the number of Republicans sponsoring bills and voting to repeal the death penalty really explode. Um, in the past you know, two or three years, we've had over 60 Republican lawmakers sponsoring bills to repeal, hundreds of others voting in favor of it. We see legislation proposed in 10 or 11 states each year with Republican-sponsored uh, pieces of bills. And so it, it's really encouraging to see just how rapidly it's taken off. And, and we continue to advocate and try to educate uh, others on our, on our side of the aisle about the reasons the system is flawed and why it's not very smart public policy. Traditionally, has the issue of the death penalty been a political issue? Has one party more than another favored it or not favored it? Yeah, that definitely used to be true. And we really see that the death penalty 
inequality sort of hit its height of popularity in the country towards the late 1990s, early 2000s. And at that time, um, you saw most people did support it, but especially you saw that Republicans supported it more so than Democrats. Um, and then that started to change, especially under George W. Bush's presidency. We saw the left become a bit more concerned uh, at that time, at least, with civil liberties and um, and with war and some of those things. And so they, they started championing and getting rid of it, although you'd always have some people on the left that had championed that. Um, but really, you know, when we started studying this in 2000, it was very rare to see a Republican come out against the death penalty, much less a Republican sponsor legislation to get rid of it. It just wasn't done. Uh, I remember when I first started kind of changing my mind on it a number of years ago, I remember thinking, like, is this okay as a Republican? Am I allowed to think this? <laughs> kind of a groupthink um, way of, of going about which policies we take on and things like that. So I, I do think you've seen a massive shift in, per, in perception on this issue. We now see over half the country thinks that the, the death penalty is unfair, and we see rapidly decreasing support for it on both sides of the aisle, but certainly among Republicans, um, it, it's ticked down quite a bit in the past few decades. And it seems to be moving in that direction in Ohio as well. Absolutely. You know, Ohio is such an exciting state because I have to be very honest. When I first took over this organization about three years ago, Ohio was not off my radar at all as far as being a state that might repeal in the near future. And the reasons for that were, were that Ohio has one of the largest death rows in the country. I think it's the third largest. Um, traditionally, we've seen states that have repealed the death penalty have had smaller death row populations. And traditionally, we've seen states that have repealed the death penalty have been states that haven't used the death penalty in recent years, which is the majority of states. We're down to only 25 states that have operating systems at all. Um, and of those 25, over a third of them haven't carried out a, an execution in a decade or more. Um, Ohio kind of falls outside of that line, right? They've had executions within the past even five years, um, and it's a very red state and it does have a large death row. So it wasn't a state that we necessarily thought was revving up to get rid of it. But what we found was when we started coming into the state, we found rapid support for getting rid of the death penalty among conservatives. It really sort of took my breath away just how many people um, we're really concerned with this. We saw that we had really great support in the legislature among Republicans. We saw that we had tremendous support among Republican grass top leadership in the state, you know, former governors, former attorneys general, Congress people. Um, and so that was very exciting. And we continued having conversations and meeting with grassroots conservatives. And, and we've just found that there's tremendous interest in getting rid of this. And, and I think that that's a testament to what's happened nationally as well. I think as We've seen more and more states getting rid of it as we've continued to talk about this at the national level. People are, and as we move into the age of information, too, you know, that can't be discredited. People are getting to see behind the curtain of the justice system in a way they never did before unless they were personally impacted. And they're recognizing just how many problems we have with wrongful convictions, how the system works to uphold itself instead of seeking truth. We see a lot of bias and arbitrariness. Um, we certainly are learning a lot more about the cost and the effectiveness of that money that's being spent on actually uh, increasing public safety. And, and what people are finding is that the death penalty fails across all of these metrics. You know, it really isn't justifiable. It just doesn't make sense. And so there's a myriad of reasons for people to oppose it on the right. Um, but I think as more and more people have become aware of those, that's why we see such a tidal wave in states like Ohio, where there's a real eagerness to get rid of it. Talking with Hannah Cox, who's the senior national manager of conservatives concerned about the death penalty. Ohio has 139 uh, inmates on death row. For a long time, there were more than 200. And the reason why it's much lower is because these folks were on death row. And, and we did, at one point a few years ago, maybe a decade ago, we were second behind Texas in executions. 
That's right. Yep. Ohio was a very high usage state for many, many years. Um, and we've seen that with the new administration that has swiftly changed. Um, and I think that, again, that has changed for a lot of reasons. Again, I just think public support is shifting and leaders recognize it. I think there's been real issues with obtaining constitutional ways to carry out the executions. Um, but I think more, more so than anything else, it's just this recognition that it takes a whole lot of money. It takes a whole lot of effort to carry out executions, and it's not really benefiting anyone. We see tons of murder victims' family members come out and speak against the system and talk about the harmful effects that it has had on their lives. We see many people who've worked in corrections or around law enforcement, around the judicial system, coming out and speaking about its flaws and the unfairness of it. Um, and we really see a need um, and a recognition of, you know, of what actually prevents violence. We're learning a lot more about the science of violence and, and what we can do to adequately treat it and address it and limit it. Um, and the death penalty is, is not any way to do that. In fact, it wastes really precious resources that could be spent on things that do actually work or on solving more crimes in the first place. So it's, it's an issue of, you know, not always an ethical issue for many people. It's often an issue of practicality. And at the end of the day, it just doesn't work and it's too expensive. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And getting into some of the additional arguments, some would say, you know, if somebody is locked in a cage that they can't get out of, then why not just leave them in the cage? And also because going through the whole execution process victimizes the family of the person being executed, and, and they are, they've done nothing wrong. But it also goes deeper, and we can look at Hamilton County where Cincinnati is for that, right? That's exactly right. Um, and I think that you named many of the, the issues that people are raising when we have these discussions. Um, and I think when you point out, you know, certain counties in Ohio, we, we see that not only in Ohio, but across the country, that there's only a very small number of counties that even pursue death penalty cases in the first place. The vast majority of them have recognized that this is too expensive and that, again, it's an opportunity cost that means they are less likely to be able to solve more crimes or to actually achieve justice for all. Um, so most counties turn away from it. It's traditionally only a few, um, small number, about 2% of counties in the country that still pursue death penalty cases. They tend to be wealthier counties, larger counties. Um, and to date, since reinstatement of the death penalty in, in the 1970s, we've seen that every execution carried out in this country has come from less than 16% of the nation's counties. So it really is arbitrary. A lot of people think that who gets the death penalty has to do with, you know, the heinousness of the crime or the, quote, quote, worst of the worst, which is a very subjective qualification in the first place. But even if we could agree on what that qualification would look like, it's certainly by no means the way that we are deciding who gets the death penalty. It comes down almost entirely to the location where the crime is committed, um, followed by the socioeconomic status of the defendant and the race of the victim. We see it's usually applied for white victims, and usually it's only poor people that end up on death row. And so there's a lot of unfairness around it. Um, on top of the innocence issues, which, you know, we've seen 11 more people officially exonerated already this year from death row. That brings our number to one person exonerated for every eight executions in this country. In Ohio, I think it's one person exonerated for every five executions. So the system's overrun with uh, wrongful convictions. And we've seen, you know, the states are not capable of carrying this out in a fair or just manner and in a manner that doesn't risk innocent human life. It seems like whether anybody supports or doesn't support executions, the fact that county prosecutors are elected officials and might garner more votes by being tough on crime, by putting people on death row, there just seems to be something problematic about that. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, we see that the people, again, in these 2% of counties that are continuing to pursue these cases, are it is up to the district attorney. They get almost unilateral you know, decision-making power in that. 
and many of them use this as a sort of um, knot in their belt, you know, where they get to come out and say, look at what I did. I had this case. And these cases get a lot of media attention. They tend to get um, a lot of focal points that can elevate the, per- the people involved and, and their names and, and get them in the media more and, and help them then campaign on being so, quote, quote, tough on crime. Now, the average person doesn't have time to sit here and look at crime statistics and recognize that it's a total farce. Death penalty, I would argue, is actually soft on crime because, again, it wastes so much money that's not going to things that would actually work to make us safer. But there's been a perception in this country for many years that um, being punitive is somehow tough on crime. And so that has helped a lot of these guys um, really make a name for themselves, and then they usually are the kind that go on to become attorneys general or governors or senators, and, and they keep kind of climbing that ladder. I don't think that we should be using human as a bargaining chip or as a political campaign. What about folks, though, who say, you know, the the victim is never going to have the opportunity to enjoy life again, and even though this person might spend life in prison, they don't deserve life at all. They might even cite biblical reasons for the death penalty. What do you say to folks like that? Yeah, you know, I disagree with them in, in thinking that there is an ethical component to the death penalty. I think, you know, having actually worked around these systems and these people, and as a person of faith, I am someone who believes there's always a pathway to redemption. I think there are many examples, even in the Bible, of people who committed murder who went on to be used powerfully. And I think that what we do when we throw away people who have done something horrible is we eradicate the possibility of redemption. We eradicate the possibility for them to make amends to society and and I, you know, I get to know some of these people, and I see the transformation in their lives, and I see the possibilities they could have to actually try to prevent the next person from carrying out such a crime. Uh, we, we remove any potential for good when we get rid of, of, of a human life because they've done something wrong. Um, but you know, aside from that, I don't really need people to necessarily agree with me on everything I just said. I think there's plenty of people who can believe the death penalty is ethical or, or just. Um, in in theory, but what we have to have the conversation around is how it operates in practice, and we have to deal in reality, and the reality is is that this has always been a very failed system. It's always killed innocent people. It's always been socioeconomically and racially biased. We have tried to fix it for decades and decades and decades, and it continues to operate in the exact same manner, and that's because humans run government, and humans are fallible, and there will always be mistakes, and there will always be bias. We can't eradicate that, and so due to these factors, this is why we believe in a limited government in the first place, in my camp, right? We know government is prone to these things. We know that that can't ever be eradicated or fixed, and so government needs to be extremely limited, and certainly we cannot include giving it the power of life and death if we want to see a a limited government. There's bipartisan legislation at the Ohio State House. Governor Mike DeWine was asked about it. He basically said, you know, with the pandemic going on, it's not a high priority to him right now, but if the legislation makes it to his desk, he'll take a look at it. There seems to be a lot of belief in Ohio that he might sign something that would would come to him that would do away with the death penalty. Yeah, we're certainly hopeful for that. You know, I think Governor DeWine has shown tremendous leadership since taking over. I've been very impressed with his work. I think he has um, portrayed himself to be someone who's very committed to constitutional principles, someone who really very much believes in individual liberty and a limited government and and pro-life causes. Um, I think he's also somebody who's had the benefit of witnessing the system from various positions and over a number of decades. You know, he was first in the state legislature and then attorney general and now governor. And so he's actually been more intimately involved with this process than many others, and I think he's often probably seen uh, the harmful impact it has on victims, on their family members, on communities. I think he's seen the uh, ineffectiveness of it on as a public policy. I'm sure he cares about the amount of money being wasted on it. Um, so I really appreciate 
the actions that he's taken thus far in his tenure to ensure that uh, innocent lives are not being taken and to ensure that constitutional protocols are being followed. And, and I have every reason to hope and think that he will continue that, that same leadership. And I, I should have mentioned at the beginning of his comment about that, he did say that his feelings about the death penalty have evolved, which is the kind of wording that people use when they've changed their mind. <laughs> That's right. I often I often say that, too. And, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who also changed my mind on the death penalty. I used to be very pro-death penalty um, usage. I used to be very, you know, tough on crime sort of mentality. But I was somebody who'd never been around the system. I didn't know what I was talking about. I kind of just had this perception from, you know, what I gathered watching Law & Order SVU and, and CSI and shows like that. Uh, when people actually get up close to the justice system and actually start working around it, I find that they change their tune quite quickly. And um, I think he's had the, the history and the experience and the opportunity to see things up close. And then I think it would make a lot of sense for him to have evolved on the issue. Because when you really uh, know the facts, there's, very, there's really no argument I can think of that would justify keeping this on the books. Well, one of the things about the death penalty to me that's always been disturbing is, you know, when there is an execution going on somewhere and you read any newspaper, local or, or national, and when there's a story about it, the comment section underneath just has some horrific statements from people about, you know, fry them and, and just do this and that to them. And... Yeah, you know, it, it is very disturbing to read those comments. I always think, wow, you wrote that publicly under your own name. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. You're kind of the person I think I should be afraid of. Um, it, it is very very odd and weird, and um, and I think it's been socially acceptable for some time. I also think that's changing. It's typically older people I see writing statements like that, um, and I, you know, I just think they look pretty out of touch, and also, again, like, pretty creepy. I mean, if you're if you're running to express your desire to, like, kill people on Facebook, I'm a little concerned for you. And when, when I talk about, you know, those comments being horrific to me, that doesn't even have anything to do with whether I'm for or against the death penalty. It's just the idea that that person being executed could just as well been a member of your family as whose family he is a member of. That's right. There's definitely a lack of humility, I think, when you see those kinds of comments. And, and, and as a whole, when we talk about matters of the justice community, you know, people fail to realize there are so many laws in this country. It is certain that all of us have committed a felony at some point. I think there's close to 5,000 felonies on the books. Um, and so there's, there's, you know, the fact that many people do not get caught for those infractions because of the communities they live in, because of the positions they're born into, because of the race of their, you know, background, because of their um, affluence in a community where somebody else might end up in jail for some of these things. And so I think that what we have to start recognizing is that at the base of all this, we have far too many laws. We um, all could end up in, in, in captured by the justice system in one way or another. There's inherent unfairness in it. There's inherent bias in it. And, it is, and we should all hope that we have a more fair um, and limited in power and scope of power system so that we really can ensure we are upholding the rights of our citizens, protecting the sanctity of human life, and upholding our values of limited government and individual liberty. Um, and so I think that we all need to approach it from that angle and recognize that it could be us, it could be a family member, it could be somebody that we know and care about. And if you don't think that your own family member or yourself would lose your um, natural rights or your inherent value as a human being because you did something wrong, then you shouldn't have that same posture towards others. Talking with Hannah Cox, she's the senior national manager of conservatives concerned about the death penalty. Anything else you'd like to add? No, 
you know, I just hope people will check out our website and get involved if this is an issue they care about. We're really excited to have a presence in Ohio. We're thrilled to be working there. I've got to say, I personally love getting to come into the state. I think you have the best people, and I've just really enjoyed getting to work around your legislature and your capital. So we'd love to connect with folks. And again, they can find us at conservativeconcern.org. Okay, Hannah, thanks so much for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.